Amen. And thank you, Brother Vince. First Corinthians chapter 9 is where we'll be as we continue just walking through uh, this book of the Bible. There's an old story, uh, I think it's really a book that was written a long time ago, that helps kind of to illustrate uh, what this passage is, is talking about this morning. So much of what, what Paul is going to teach us and what Paul has been saying um, is about church unity and how we achieve church unity. And so in most of Paul's letters, what he does is in the first half of a book, he'll lay out the theological, the doctrinal, kind of foundational pieces for uh, whatever that church is dealing with. And then the second half, he begins dealing with just practical issues that just stack and kind of compound upon themselves. And in 1 Corinthians is no different there. However, what we've seen now is Paul is applying this idea of church unity. How do you have a church that's unified, the church that's, that's one? And he begins walking through all of these things. And, and last week, he introduced this idea of, of Christian liberty, this idea of Christian freedom, um, what that means and what that doesn't mean. And, and for a large chunk of the rest of the book, Paul's going to be wrestling with that idea that we as, as Christians, if we're believers in Jesus, we have this freedom that God has given us, this freedom to obey God. But there's certain things that that does mean and there's certain things that that doesn't mean. And so last week we saw uh, this idea that, that food that's offered to idols, that, that, that Christian freedom gives us the freedom, and we don't have to worry about if our spam is kosher or not, if it came from the right, whatever animal spam comes off of or not. If it's sacrificed to an idol, then we don't know there's, there's freedom there, there's, there's grace within the Lord. However, we know if it's sacrificed to an idol, we should abstain from it. And Paul's going to keep walking this through and keep, keep doing his implications. So what he's going to do in this text, he's going to show you a right that he has. He's going to argue for this right, and he's going to tell you why he is not enforcing that right and letting it go. And so the story of the little hen, if you know the story of the little hen, there was a little hen, a little red hen, and there's a cat, a mouse, and a dog that all lived together. And I can't figure out exactly how that relationship worked. But the way the story goes, and it's this old story, is the cat and the mouse and the dog would sleep all day long and they would do nothing. And the little red hen was up and she did everything for the house. She swept, she mopped, she did the dishes, she vacuumed, she mowed, everything for the house while the cat, the dog, and the mouse slept. Well, one day the little red hen found some wheat seeds. And so she grabbed the seeds, and she said, Who's going to help me plant these seeds? Not I, said the cat. Not I, said the dog. Not I, said the mouse. And so the little red hen goes, and she plants the wheat seeds. Every day she'd go out and water, and she would pull the weeds. And certainly what ends up happening is wheat sprouts up. And so the, cat, the little red hen goes, Who's going to go and cut the wheat? Not I, said the cat. Not I, said the dog. Not I, said the mouse. And so the little red hen goes, well, I will go cut the wheat. This was back before they had Walmart. So the hen goes, who's going to take the wheat to the mill? What do the cat, the dog, and the mouse say? Not I, we're not going to do it. 
So the little red hen takes the wheat to the mill and gets it into flour. She comes back and she begins baking a cake. And so she says, who's going to gather sticks for the oven? They didn't have uh, whatever our ovens are made out of now. <laughs> Hopes and dreams, that's what our oven's made out of. The cat, the dog, and the mouse all reply, not I, we're just going to keep sleeping. We're not going to go get the sticks. And so the, the little chick builds a fire and she stokes the fire and she mixes her cake and she makes her cake on the oven and she gets her cake out and all of a sudden the aroma of a good cake fills their little house and so the little hen goes who's going to help me eat the cake and the cat goes I will and the dog goes I will and the mouse goes I will and the little red hen goes I planted the wheat I tended to the wheat I cut the wheat. I took the wheat to the mill. I ground the wheat into flowers. I gathered the sticks. I built the fire. I mixed the cake. I did all of the cooking and everything. I will eat the cake by myself. And the story goes, the little hen did eat the cake. And then she got fat and was cooked at Golden Chick. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the story goes, the, cake, the, the hen ate the cake, all of it, every piece. And the next time there was a chore to do, the cat, the dog, and the mouse helped. That they jumped in. That they didn't just lay and sleep all day long. What we're going to see Paul talk about here is this idea of what his right is as an apostle. And he's going to deal with finances, and he's going to deal with funding. Should he be paid or should he not be paid? And it applies to us um, as a church. And so I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to read all the way through verse 14, and then we'll pray and, and walk through verse by verse, just like we always do. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, at least I am to you, because you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Don't we have a right to eat and drink? Don't we have a right to be accompanied by a believing wife like other apostles, the Lord's brother in Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I have no right to refrain from working? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Or who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock? I am saying this from a human perspective, doesn't the law also say the same thing? Is it written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain? Is God really concerned about the ox? Isn't he really saying it is for our sake? Yes, it is written for our sake because he who plows ought to plow in hope. And he who threshes should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we, uh, don't even we. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and for all of your word. But I pray now as we dive into this passage, as we look at your words here in this place, 
that you would help us to grow in you. Help us to see your words. Help it to seep into our hearts and to shape us and to mold us and to make us more like you. We pray that your gospel would be apparent and that it would be clear and how that gospel plays out in our lives, God, would be clear and applicable for us. God, I pray that your word would encourage us where we need encouragement. That your word would convict us where we need conviction. And that ultimately, God, we would grow in you because of your word. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's start in verse 1 again. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to the Lord, at least I am to you because you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So Paul is the one who's authoring these things. He's authoring this letter. He's, he's the human author for this, and he's been writing this whole letter. So much of it, like we said earlier, is about church unity. And so last week, Paul talked about these offerings to idols that have been, uh, and, and the food that was sacrificed in those temples. And now Paul seems like he's doing a 180 and a shift, but really he's taking this idea of Christian liberty, and now he's applying it to a new set of circumstances that this church is going to be dealing with. And so Paul says, am I not free? He says, am I not an apostle? The criteria, so the, the word apostle means sent ones. We get this wrong because in a sense, if you and I are believers in Jesus Christ, if you and I are Christians, then, then in a kind of generic, general sense, we are apostles. We have been sent by God. But in a more, like a, a dogma, not dogma, just in a more, formal way of thinking about apostleship, that this is not an office that continues now. Paul's saying, am I not an apostle? And later on in the letter, he'll say he was the last of the apostles. We're dealing with the difference between capital A apostle and lowercase a. Lowercase a apostles are apostles that have been sent out. That's you and I. We're sent by God to our, our brothers and sisters, to our neighbors, to disciple one another, to evangelize, to draw others to the gospel as best we can. But capital A apostles were apostles appointed by Jesus himself. So one of the requirements of being an apostle is you had to see Jesus bodily. We know that Paul did. He has this encounter on the road to Damascus where he's a Christian killer. He's going to arrest Christians in the city. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus shows up in a bright light. I can't imagine how frightening that must have been. He can't see, but he can hear Jesus. I love that text of Scripture because Paul is going and persecuting Christians after Jesus has died. And Paul's not ever come after Jesus. But Jesus looks at Paul and he says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies so much so with his church and with believers that he owns that when Paul is persecuting Christians, what he's really doing is persecuting Christ himself. It's through that encounter that God saves Paul. So he's saying, I am an apostle. He says, I've seen, right, have I not seen the Lord Jesus? Or we could say, it, you've saw Jesus, you saw him face to face. And then Paul kind of goes on this weird little tangent. If, if I'm not an apostle to others, at least I am to you. What, what Paul's saying is there may be some people who want to fight Paul on these criteria and stuff. Paul goes, but this church at Corinth, you can't fight me on that. He says, you're the seal of my apostleship. What Paul is getting at is he's the one who planted this church. 
He went to Corinth. He preached the gospel. God saved people. They gathered together. And then Paul and their leadership for a year and a half is the one who set this foundation for them, this foundation on the proclamation of the gospel. That was what 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 says. According to God's grace that was given to me, I laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it, but each one is careful how he builds on it. That was back when Paul was talking about all of the different Sunday school teachers that people had the favorites of. And Paul's saying, that's not church unity. We all focus on Jesus. He is the one. We laid the foundation, but the foundation is Jesus. That's what's being built here. And so Paul says, you're the seal of my apostleship. You authenticate it. You you ratify it. Because you're a church that believes those things. So they struggled mightily. I think of this uh, often when I I think about pastors now. Because you can't really be a pastor if the Lord hasn't, like you don't have a congregation that you pastor. (laughs) You can't sit at your house just, scrolling through MySpace or whatever social media platform you want and call yourself a pastor if you don't have a church that recognizes you as their pastor. That's what Paul's saying. Other churches may argue over things, but Paul, for this church, is not delving into those arguments. He's not trying to prove himself as an apostle. He says, you know exactly who I am. That Paul planted the church. God gave the growth, but it's Paul who set the foundation for them. Verse 3. So Paul says, uh, My defense to those who examine me is this. Don't we have a right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife like the other apostles, the Lord's brother and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I have no right to refrain from working? So now we kind of see what Paul is getting at. He's talking about this idea of rights. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you look backwards just a few verses to verse 9, Paul says this, But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. This is a key point for church unity that Paul is again going to flesh out for us through the rest of the book. What Paul is saying is you may have these rights, these things that you feel like you deserve, but for the sake of other believers in Jesus Christ, there may be some rights that you have that you let go of to help those people grow. That love triumphs over those things. And so Paul goes to an interesting point. He says, don't we have a right to eat and drink? Yes. Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife like the other apostles, the Lord's brothers and Cephas? In, in, in Matthew, there's a reference to the Lord's brothers, and it's talking about uh, four guys, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Not Judas is a carrot that was the betrayer of Jesus. There's another Judas within the discipleship. I snuck in as a carrot there, and nobody got it. Judas Iscariot. James is likely the author of the book of James in the New Testament. And so what we see is they're all married. And then we also see a reference to Cephas, which is Peter. What we see is Peter's married. And we know this because Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. So, not to, to poke at our Catholic friends, but the first pope was married. If that's what we believe. So, so there's some discontrol uh, there. So, so we see that there's this right that Peter's talking, or that, that, that 
Who am I? Paul. Paul is talking about. And it links back to verse 8. This is the idea he's thinking through. And this right that he's getting to, this right that he's bringing up is what he has and what the other apostles have. He says that those other apostles have a right to go with their spouse, to go with their kids, to go do ministry with those people. We all have a right to eat and to drink, that we're human beings and we need those things, that God has given those things. But then he, he flips one on the Corinthians. He's like, so do Barnabas and I have, don't have a right for those things because they don't, they're not married, him and Barnabas? No. It's an interesting point here. Paul's going to talk to us about pastoring and, and apostleship. Uh, what he's saying here is it's, it's not a sin. It's not a hindrance to ministry to be married. I promise you I am a far better pastor as a married one than as a single. There's a whole group of old people at Tulia, Texas that will vouch for this. And I love them dearly, but man, they gave me too much of a leash as a single young man out of college. I did some dumb things. That a spouse, that your kids can be blessings to a ministry. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and, and doesn't eat its fruit? Or who shepherds a flock and doesn't drink the milk from the flock? I am saying this from a human perspective. Doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Is God really concerned about oxen? Is he really saying it, or is he really saying it for our sake? Yes, it's written for our sake. He who plows ought to plow in hope, and he who threshes ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crop. So Paul says, Several things here, and he has three rhetorical questions to kind of poke and deprive the Corinthians into thinking about this right that he's arguing for. He's saying, I have these rights as an apostle. I have these rights as a minister of God's word. He's building up these rights, and we'll see in a second what he's going to do with them. So he says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? This is true even today. You don't serve your own expense. Like you're, you're pay, like you, the government funds you to go be a soldier, to go fight. Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the fruit? Or who shepherds the flock and doesn't drink the milk from the flock? He's saying that you have these workers, you have these roles, you have these things that you do, and there's benefits that come with these things. That's why you do those things. You don't plant a vineyard because of the aesthetic quality that it gives you. You plant a vineyard to grow a crop. You don't have a flock of sheep just because it's fun to have a flock of sheep. There's a benefit to them. It's also interesting that Paul brings those three up. If you'll flip over to Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 through 7, Paul says this. Second Timothy 2, 2, 3 through 7. Share in sufferings as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled with certain uh, concerns of civilian's life. He is pleased. He seeks to please the command of his officer. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. 1 Timothy is Paul writing to Timothy, a pastor. 
that Paul has these images in place for a reason, right? It's not just Paul randomly thinking through these questions. It's Paul being influenced by the Holy Spirit to write these things down. And what we see is Paul's talking about pastors. He's talking about ministers of the word. He gives these three questions trying to make this point that he has this right, that there are things that should benefit those who are in the ministry. But he does so by giving illustrations of people and and ideas that encompass pastoral ministry. They should be soldiers fighting for the gospel, fighting for the good fight. The end of Ephesians is all about the armor of God. You don't wear armor if you're not in a battle. The goal of the fight, right? we can't conquer the the dark. We, We lean into Jesus. The goal of the armor of God, one of these secrets when you look at Ephesians, is not meant for you to have your sword and run into battle just swinging it around trying to slay enemies. God gives the armor of God at the end of Ephesians. Do you know what it's for? To stand firm. To not move from the gospel. Our temptation that you and I are going to face is there's going to be a million different voices and a million different things that blow our way. And far too often we will be tempted to think that the gospel's not quite enough, that I have to take just a little bit of sidestep to make it work out for me, that the Bible's not quite sufficient for what I need. And that's a lie from Satan. So what you need, what Paul is telling us, is who serves as a soldier at his own expense, that there's this right to these things. But, but secondarily, what Paul's telling us is you need a pastor, you need ministers, that this is what a pastor should be, someone who stands firm on the gospel and will not move. Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat its fruit. Paul's already talked about planting and watering in 1 Corinthians. He's talked about the role of, of a pastor, role of, of ministers in farming that you plant the seeds of the gospel that you water those seeds that other people may come along and help you plant seeds and help you water those seeds but ultimately it's god who gives the growth but you still have to put the seed in the ground you still have to water a shepherd this is where the word pastor comes from is shepherd the idea that Paul is getting at, right, or who shepherds a flock and doesn't drink from the milk of the flock. What Paul's saying is a shepherd's supposed to know his sheep, and a sheep are supposed to know his shepherd. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd, the good shepherd, and the sheep who know his voice follow after him, and the sheep who don't know his voice are goats. They don't follow. And so as a pastor, you shepherd, you care for your people. trim the wool when the wool needs trimmed. You tend to wounds when there's wounds. You care for them. And at the end of the day, your pastor is also a sheep, member of the congregation. This is where Paul leans into his argument a little bit more, right? He's saying all of those things. He's like, am I saying this from a human perspective? No, the law says the same thing. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4. Do not muzzle an ox while it treads out its grain. The question we should ask when we read this passage that's interesting is why is Paul appealing to the Mosaic law for this? Because we see in in Romans chapter 7. Oh, sorry. I lost my bookmark. Romans chapter 7. If you have your your, uh, text there, well, I find mine. I can't find it. 
Romans chapter 7, Galatians chapter 6 says the same thing, that Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled the law. He didn't abolish it. He fulfills the law for us. So the Old Testament law doesn't have the same authority for you and I that it had before Jesus Christ, that there's dietary laws, that there's Sabbath laws, that there's other laws in the Old Testament that mean things. They teach us about God. They teach us about God's character. But you and I on this side of the cross don't explicitly have to follow those because Jesus has revealed himself to us in that way. So why is Paul appealing to the Old Testament law? Well, because even though we're believers in Jesus and we're on this side of the law and Jesus has fulfilled the law, it's still the word of God. It still is applicable for us. You'll hear this argument every now and then that people will look at Deuteronomy or they'll look at Leviticus and they'll pull some obscure laws out like you shouldn't be wearing clothes that have two different kinds of thread in them or, or you shouldn't have cheese on your hamburgers because you shouldn't dip your milk, uh, your, your meat in, in milk. Those are all real things that people will argue. If you want to search on Google, you'll see them. The idea of the law that Jesus teaches us, he summarizes it in two ways. Love God and then love others from that God. Love God and let the love of God fill you so much that you love others through that. That's the whole law summed up. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are about our relationship with the Lord, and the next six are about our relationship with one another. So the rule of thumb is, is God's word, all of God's word, Old Testament, New Testament, reveals God to us. That's the purpose and the point of God's word. We need that revelation. Without that revelation, we have no idea on how to be saved. We can know there is a God, but we can't know how God saves us. We can't repent and believe in God. So we need this special revelation that the Bible gives, revealing God to us. But what the word of God also does, even the Old Testament, is it reveals our sins to us as well. It reveals how we're separate how we've rebelled against that God. And so we let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. So if the laws are repeated in the New Testament, we follow those laws. You know, out of all the Ten Commandments, only one of the Ten Commandments is not repeated in the New Testament. It's the Sabbath. To which Jesus says, I am the Sabbath. So we follow a different kind of Sabbath. Our rest is not in taking a day off. Our rest is in Jesus Christ. That's who gives us our Sabbath. And so Paul looks at this law. Do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. And I like what Paul does. I I love where Paul takes this. He goes, do you think that the oxen have their Bibles open in the stable and they're doing a Bible study on this passage? That this is their great commission. All the oxen have Deuteronomy 25.4 memorized. That when the owner doesn't feed them like they're supposed to be fed, they pull out their Bibles and they go, right here, you have to feed us. No. It wasn't written for oxen. It was written for us. To help us understand what the Word of God is saying. We see God use animals in in, in the Bible in in a variety of, of different ways. Proverbs 12.10 talks about how animals should, uh, we should take care of animals. We should not just beat them senselessly. We know the story of Balaam's donkey in in, in Numbers where where Balaam is beating his donkey because it won't walk down the road and then finally God opens and lets the donkey talk, which I imagine was an experience. It's what the whole movie Shrek's based off of. We're not just mean to our animals, not because animals bring anything to us, but they reveal our heart. 
I walked into our house this week at lunchtime, and our dogs were supposed to be outside, but I hear the pitter-patter of dogs' feet. Then I look up, and our outdoor lab, Rolo, who's eaten many a chicken in his day, just runs up and greets me like he's supposed to be inside. I go and look and realize one of the irresponsible moors had left the back door open, and that Rolo and Sugar and Tootsie, who is barely a dog, mainly a cat, had just been running in and out of the house all day long. They drug out trash. They had chewed up stuffed animal toys. None of the stuff I wanted them to take, all of the toys that the kids were like hoping get chewed up, none of those. <laughs> it was just a mess in the house. And I could think this week as I was looking through this is those dogs had better be grateful for Proverbs 12.10. that they reveal our heart. I promise you they revealed some anger in my heart that day. <laughs> this is what Paul's getting at. Is God really concerned about oxen? I, Rolo has not repented to me. He won't talk to me right now. Tootsie doesn't even know what was wrong, and Sugar probably didn't do anything. She's the only innocent one of the batch. It's not for their sake. It's for our sake. That's what Paul's saying. He who plows should have hope in your plowing. That he who threshes should have hope in getting to share the crop. That all of these things are not just things, that they're spiritual, that are meant to draw us to the Lord, meant to reveal things about us, reveal God himself to us and reveal our sin to us so that we can repent and turn and grow in Jesus Christ through those things. Look what Paul says in, in verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we do not hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the uh, offerings of the altar? And in the same way, the Lord has commanded those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. So this is Paul's argument. He's saying we have this right as apostles. There's this right as ministers of the word. And the right that he is referring to is that they paid their ministers. They took care of their, their pastors. Does a soldier serve at his own expense? Does a farmer plant a vineyard not to eat its fruit? Does a shepherd not uh, flock the, drink the milk from the flock? Don't muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Paul's saying all of those things, whether they're just experiential things, he turns back to the Old Testament law, and he says, or if it's the word of God, it's teaching us that this right that God has given us is that you can pay your pastors, you can pay ministers of the church to receive a salary so that they can minister better to you. What Paul's saying is if you can do this, this is good for the church. This is a, I'll be honest, this is a weird one to preach for me. <laughs> what Paul's saying is, is true and it's helpful is that if you have a pastor that you can pay they don't have to worry about working outside the home they can worry about studying the scripture and praying and ministering in those ways that's a huge benefit for churches 
And if you look across our cultural landscape, what Vince and I were talking about this this morning, majority of SBC churches have 75 people or less. And it's a large majority, like 90% of the SBC is of churches, 75 people or less. So we're nominative. We're normal within the SBC. This is the size of churches that we're dealing with. And more and more every year, what you're seeing is churches having to have pastors go part-time. And it's difficult and it's hard. And so what Paul's saying is he's laying out his authority, he's laying out his right, and then do you catch what Paul does? He says, we have not made use of this right. That Paul says, instead of having y'all pay, he makes tents. He does other things. It's not that they don't deserve it, and it's not that it's something that shouldn't take place. It's Paul saying, this is a right that we give up to not cause any divisions, to not cause any issues. Can you imagine what would happen in First Baptist Corinth if they paid Paul, but they didn't pay Peter? If they paid Paul, but they didn't pay Apollos? I mean, that was the arguments. Those were the fights that took place at the very beginning of this book that they're working through. So what Paul is saying is for the sake of church unity and because he could afford to do so and minister well, he doesn't take a salary from this church. He does it to not hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then he makes sure to appeal to the Old Testament again. Don't you know that those who perform temple services eat the food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar. If you look at Leviticus, when you would bring your offerings to the temple and you would take them to the temple and you would sacrifice them, a portion of those offerings would go to the Levites, to Aaron and his family, the priestly tribe, so that that's what they lived off of. What Paul's saying is this is the way God has set these things up for. That those commanded, uh, that the Lord has commanded that those that preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. Paul appeals to Jesus's words in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, and he appeals to Deuteronomy 25, 4. And Paul does this again in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He appeals to the same text of scripture for this argument. It's this idea of Christian freedom that Paul is, is digging into. That there are things that are rights that we feel like we have, things that, that we deserve, things that we are owed. And Paul is saying, one of the rights, one of the things that I'm deserved that I give up is this salary that you should pay me. And he does so to keep church unity. This is a hard passage to apply for us, right, as a congregation. I don't think it's unbiblical that I take a salary from the church. And nobody has raised that question for me, but the text raises that question, so I want to make sure to address it. This is not a topical sermon. I'm not randomly picking a section of Scripture out and trying to get a raise. I do, if you ever find a pastor who uses the pulpit to try to get a raise, leave. It's not what the pulpit's for. It's for the proclamation of the gospel, building one another up in Jesus Christ. But one of the things the Bible teaches us throughout the scriptures is that money tends to be an issue with Christians. That it can cause all sorts of issues. The love of money is the root of, you know, it's not the root of all evil, it's the root of all kinds of evil. 
we were talking about this in Sunday school with the kids this morning. I think y'all were the same one that, that the, uh, Mary pours the oil on Jesus' head. And what is it that Judas says? We could have sold that and given it to the poor. Even if that's what Judas would have done, it would have been done with the wrong heart. Brothers and sisters, God does not need our monies. We don't bring anything to the Lord, and that includes our finances. He's far beyond us in those areas, far greater than us. Instead, the way God has taught us with his word to think about our treasures, to think about the things that we have, is that you and I are stewards of what God has given us. None of it is actually ours. All of it belongs to the Lord. So Paul's saying in, in this passage, and I think it's important, it's just uncomfortable for me because it's a weird, uncomfortable thing for me, is Paul's encouraging churches to support your pastors. And listen, I love you guys. If not, we're supported. We're fine. But one of the things I see with this passage, and, and I've talked about it with other people, is, is the ministry is a place where people can be lazy for many years and it's not seen. That you'll have lots of pastors, that you'll have lots of youth pastors who will act and look like they're busy and doing things, but at the end of the day, when you step back and you see their life, you realize they're not. And that fruit isn't seen for years down the road. I pray that my ministry is seen as not lazy. I'm, I'm a lot of things, but lazy is not one of them. I can't be lazy. Some ministers will sin by desiring wealth. I do not want a private plane, especially a jet. I rode with Tanner once, and that was as close to Kenneth Copeland as I ever want to be. <laughs> Tanner's great. The, the pulpit. You'll see pastors that will use the pulpit as a soapbox. There's a platform to stand on and try to either compound guilt or to make a political statement or do something that's antithetical to the gospel. This is where pastors have to be soldiers and stand firm in the gospel. This isn't an area for rumors. This isn't an area for debate. This isn't an area where I can get up on my platform and tell you that oatmeal cream pies are the best dessert and anybody who thinks otherwise is in sin and should repent and turn to the Lord right now. All of those things are pointless from the pulpit, whether they're true or not. But it seems like in the age of social media, especially post-2020 and COVID, that far too many pulpits are more about getting social media likes and clicks than it is about pastoring your church. I have zero desire to be a social media star. In all honesty, if I go back to a flip phone, I would 100% would. That's not what the church is about. for the church funds that, that, that Paul kind of talks about here. We just voted in our budget at the last members meeting when we had the chili cook-off. I won't say who's the queen of chili because she's shy and I don't want to embarrass her, but it was real good. We voted in our budget at that uh, uh, member meeting. And we're fine. Like this is what I enjoyed about this passage when I was walking through it. Is like we're most of the time what you see happening is is pastors will preach expositorily until the budget goes down, and then when the budget goes down, all of a sudden there'll be a tithing sermon or series that'll take place. You can look at our numbers. We're fine with the budget. This isn't a. I'm not going to let our budget control what's preached from the pulpit. I'm going to preach the Bible, and if we go broke preaching the Bible, praise the Lord. 
But one of the things we have to be careful of as brothers and sisters in Christ, and if you're a member of the church, you're responsible for these things too, is that if you look at the church's budget, you can likely see what the church cares about and what they don't really care about. You can look at a statement of faith, you can look at all of the posts, you can hear all of those things, but at the end of the day, where we put our money matters. Look at the budget and see what we care about. I'm proud of our church. We gave more to missions this year. We have more in the budget for missions this year than we ever have as a church. We have to be careful. Our security as a church is not based on how much we have in the general fund or how much we don't. Our security in Christ is wrapped up in Christ and him crucified. Not in the amount of dollars that we get in tithes and offerings. So here's some rules, some guidelines for giving in the church because the Bible talks a ton about these things. Money is important, not necessarily because God needs our money, but it reveals more about us than it does anything else. So the word tithe means 10%. That's where you get, if you've heard, you give 10% of your income. It comes from this word, tithe. There are scholars and pastors that are far smarter than me that have studied in the Old Testament, and they look and they say, if you look in the Old Testament, you add up all of the giving and things that take place, it'd be closer to 25% uh, that you give. We don't look at the percentage. I don't look at the percentage of what you give. But the way the Bible talks is you should give to your local church regularly. And a 10% is a great goal. There are some seasons of life where 10% may be too high for you. It's okay. There may be seasons of your life where 10% is not enough. The New Testament doesn't give us a number. What the New Testament talks about is giving sacrificially and doing so for several reasons. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And when we give sacrificially, what we're saying is this idol is not going to rule our life. Instead, Jesus Christ is going to rule our life. And so you give a tithe. And I'll argue with you that a tithe should not be designated. That you give a tithe and it may go to things that you don't like. And that's God using you to say, this is not an idol in my life. I'm going to give it because it's the Lord's. An offering would be on top of your tithe. Anything else that you feel led to give. The Bible talks about where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. We'd be remiss if we didn't notice that in this passage there's this underlying idea that takes place. And it's not that the lazy deserve wages. It's those who are serving, those who are planting, those who are shepherding, those who are working. God has designed us to be this way. Now I know there's all sorts of circumstances that can hinder those things from our life, whether it's physical issues or, or mental or, or whatever it is that takes place. But by and large, the normative part of our life, should we, we, we should be working hard for the Lord. It doesn't save us, but God empowers us to use those things for God. So work hard. As though you're working for the Lord and not for man. Focus on the eternal things. Because the things of this earth will grow strangely dim when we do. Ultimately, what Paul is getting at here and what he's always getting at is this idea of gospel centrality. 
All of these things that he argues here, all of these things that he's saying here in this text of Scripture, that you should pay your pastor, that it's okay to do so, that it's a right that they have, whether it's a right that can be used. There are some times when churches can't pay their pastors. It's okay. All of that is so that the gospel can be spread. All of that is so that the gospel can go out and change people's hearts from the inside out. That if you can afford a full-time pastor, and there's churches that are larger than us that can afford multiple pastors full-time for those things. What a blessing that is to them that they can have multiple men who are studying God's scripture, who are meeting with them and counseling them, who are praying for them and for their families, who are checking on them, who are ministering to them in various ways. What a blessing that is for them. But I also know of, of churches with larger pastors who, I think rightfully so, don't take a salary from their church. They sell enough books or they make enough DVDs or they have enough whatever it is on the side that just happens to come with their ministries. They go to enough conferences and things that they don't take a salary from their church. What a blessing that is for their church. That at the end of the day, it's not really about money. At the end of the day, it's about our hearts and how our hearts stand before God. Are we unified in seeking after Jesus Christ? Are we unified in that our bank accounts reveal more about our hearts than many of our actions and our words do? And we want our hearts to be after Jesus. So realign our priorities to look at him. Or are there idols? Are there things that suddenly kind of creep into our lives? Do you know there's one God? You cannot worship a false God and the true God at the same time. Your money can bring lots of things. My funds can bring lots of things to us. It can buy you a boat, as whatever country music singer says. But it cannot save your soul. It can buy you a dog if that's what you're wanting. I would encourage you to stay away from them from now. But it cannot save your soul. That there is one God. And three persons. And that God loves you and me far more than we can ever imagine. And if you and I had billions and billions and billions of dollars, we could give all of our funds, everything to God that we absolutely had, and God would look at us and he would say, that's not enough to pay the price that you owe. That your sin is far worse than that. You've rebelled against God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth and all things. That your sin, that my sin, is a great debt that we cannot repay. We could have Elon Musk type money and it would not be enough. That's why we need grace. Because we can't buy our way to heaven. We can't work our way to heaven. Instead, we can receive the grace of Jesus Christ that he died in our place, that he pays the debt that you and I deserve, that he lived the life that we should have lived, that he died the death that we deserve, that when Christ died on the cross, he died in our place. And that grace is free. It must be received. It's free can't buy grace 
But by God's grace, you can be saved. By God's grace, we can grow in Jesus Christ. By God's grace, there are rights that you and I have that we can let go of for the sake of brothers and sisters in Christ and help them to grow in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. I thank you that we do get to gather here this